Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm here with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. We are in the Rocks Back Pages office with our very special guest, Mr. Paul Gorman. Hello. Welcome, Paul. <laughs> Hello. Hello. How are we? We are. The Royal We <laughs> as well. Um, it's really lovely to see you. It's great to see you. Paul was actually the first guest on the podcast when we migrated to Zoom in the pandemic. So the first lockdown guest. The first lockdown guest. <laughs> yeah. wow. Lockdown Gorman. Um, and so all this time later, however many years that is, yeah. right, it's all very nebulous. Hundreds of years yeah. later, you're back with us. Three governments. About... Four times. <laughs> yeah, 18 <laughs> um, You're back with us to talk about your new book, Totally yeah. Wired, The Rise and Fall of the Music Press. And we actually launched with you when you were about to publish your the precursor to this in their own right, which I think was subtitled Adventures in the Music Press. It was, yeah, when the world was young, many, many years ago. <laughs> 2001. Yes, by yes. launch you mean we went, the site went live, public in 2001. It did go, it, yeah. went, it went live and your book came out. And so my, those, one of my excerpts would have been one of the first pieces that you published. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's uh, about right. Quite, yeah, quite and, possibly. Yeah. 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 So here, here we are all this time later. <laughs> Still talking about music, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> you just thought we'd have got a life in between. Yeah. In between those days. No, it's just is the that, biggest is stuck it not record. A life? The biggest stuck record. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're going to talk about Totally Wired today. We're going to talk about the, the music journalism. We're going to try and keep it to an hour. And <laughs> how we're going to do that. Because it's a vast and sweeping history that starts in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. I suppose... One way to start would be to ask you what inspired you to revisit the subject, which you've done as an oral history, and to, to write a proper narrative version of the history of music journalism. Well, at that launch party, where Rock's Back Pages was launched, along with In Their Own Right, and also... Jill Fermanovsky's Rock Archive. Rock Archive, so it was a tripartite it launch. It really was. It was at a place called Brit Art. A gallery run, a gallery space, I suppose you'd say, run by somebody I knew in Shoreditch High Street. So you can't get any more 2001 than that. <laughs> Memory this guy has. Hire this man. Well, <laughs> at the launch party, I approached the late Charlie Gillett, who uh, I admired very much and who'd been very helpful with the book, and said, What do you think of my book? Not your site or Jill's site. And he said, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been Charlie. Charlie. <laughs> and so I said, why? And he said, I don't really like the oral history format. I wanted to hear an overarching kind of authoritative, if that's the right word, drive, narrative drive through this business rather than people juxtaposed against each other or agreeing with each other. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, he's right. I immediately realised at that party in November... You made a terrible mistake. Yeah, it's all been a terrible <laughs> mistake. And so, ever since then, I kind of... I wrote several other books in the meantime and did lots of other stuff, but it was always at the back of my mind that this needed addressing. And it was my difficult second book as well. My first book, The Look, which had been about music and fashion, had been quite well received and launched it in LA and 
London, and that was great. And I think I got above my skis, as they say, in American political circles in regard to In Their Own Right. I amassed a huge amount of material, but I don't think I treated it in the right way and I rushed it. So come 2017, when my book about The Face magazine was published, yes. I was talking to the head of Thames and Hudson, uh, Sophie Thompson, very, very nice person. She said, what else have you got? So I told her about this, and the fact is that In Their Own Right is a great resource for approaching a subject anyway, yeah, because yeah. I don't think anybody else has been fool enough to write a book about <laughs> the music press in those 20 years. They had certainly hadn't before. But here it all was, ready to be manipulated, right. maybe so some discarded. Repurp- you just repurposed all your, old, your first book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it took me about 20 minutes and that went to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> it actually took a long time and I chucked out a lot of right. stuff as well. I kind of, you know, like on those one of those desks at a recording studio, I pulled the faders down <laughs> on some people yeah, yeah. and then other people I pushed them up because I realised that they needed accounting for at the same time, here was an opportunity to really approach those people from minority or marginalised communities whose work hadn't really been recognised yeah. and the publications that they worked for. I mean, I was kind of insane when it came to In Their Own Right because I really liked, at that point, Vibe magazine, which was in its pomp. I liked this fanzine run out of LA from the early 90s called Ben Is Dead. Mm. I, quite, I quite liked Boyzone. Yeah. which came out of the terraces and fashion and um, was into Acid House. Yeah. You know, they were the ones we'd get on one, matey, which they drove into the ground. But I loved them because... It's like Terry Farley and all those... Andrew Weatherall yeah, yeah, yeah. and all those people. I barely gave them a mention in In Their Own Right, including as well, I think there's one reference to Collusion magazine, which five issues published in the early 80s, that group around Sue Stewart yeah, yeah. and David Toop and Steve Beresford out of experimental music. And so I thought, well, here's a chance to address Charlie's big problems, <laughs> but also sort of bring up the microscope on those people as well and, you know, redress, yeah. make amends. Well, I think you've really done that. I, oh, I mean, you. you know, it's such a, a huge landscape, isn't it? And I love the fact that you've, you know, you wrote about temporary hoarding yeah. magazine and so forth, as well as a lot of pretty obscure publications that I that I love. I mean, there's also... I mean, Two or three different things sort of happened. I mean, the, the, the fanzine culture of punk sort of gave people the idea that you can, you can do a magazine. You've always had a tradition of black music being written by specialist publications, whether it's jazz things or blues and soul and so on and so forth. And I mean, I've been doing a lot of blues and soul recently because David Nathan's just kind of donated of us, kind of swathed the stuff to a us. A great, great magazine, it, right? absolutely. But but it's a direct precursor to the dance music mags yes. of the nineties, right down to the wet t-shirt competitions that be photographed in the back, the inside back, you know, right? The last okay. few pages. You know, I'd never occurred to me before that it was a straight line from blues and soul to jockey slut or, or yeah. music. Well, quite often in my work, I realise in that praxis way, you know, you do something and then you find out why you did it. Yeah, yeah. Quite often what I do is um, kind of equalise. I, right. I think the jockey slot is as important as the NME. Yeah. Or, or collusion. Mm-hmm. Or rhythm records, which were set up in 1928. <laughs> to appeal to... This was when records and record gramophones were starting... You know, this was a new technology thing. And so there'd be rhythm clubs... Right. ..which were launched. There were about 100 around the country. And the, Percy Matheson, who's the editor of Rhythm, says it's kind of peculiar. He actually uses that word, that here are people who've got records 
but they listen to them again and again and again in company. You know, they take them to a village hall or they get people over to their front rooms. It's a DJ culture in the making. You know, there is that thing where that's really just as important as mix mag, you know, (laughs) circulating mixtapes in the 80s. And so I I think that to answer your question, Barney, or your point, Barney, about the kind of the massiveness of the subject, to stop being overwhelmed by it, I had to take these through paths Mm -hmm. where I could make the links or see if I could make them or not. And Mm -hmm. sometimes maybe it didn't work, but Mm -hmm. it was a way through. Otherwise, I'd have just been overwhelmed. In terms of the ho- historical suite of the book, one of the <laughs> bits that really jumped out at me was when you mentioned that Chris Hayes was a melody maker with, you know, the, the, the famous writers that we've often talked about in the podcast, like Richard Williams and Michael Watts and Chris Welch and so forth. And Chris had joined the Melody Maker in 1929. I know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> still yeah, and ringing up Eric Clapton in the 60s saying, well, look, old boy, but, you know, what kind of plectrum do you use? And so <laughs> like, well, can he get out of bed? You know, it's 9.30 yeah. in the morning, what's he doing? Yeah. And so that's really extraordinary, isn't it? And it also shows the kind of broad church, I think, in a way. I mean, it's very male, white, straight white male. But within that, there were extremely extraordinary people working working away, and I think he's a great example of that. And again, here's somebody who goes back to 1929, and I think by the time he was retiring, he was writing, you know, he's probably giving uh, Steve Strange a call, getting him out of bed. <laughs> Good luck with that, you know. But so he's somebody who'd kind of gone through the broad swathe of the music press, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the, I suppose, tropies about anyone who's you know, interested in a sort of inside baseball way about music journalism is this sort of slightly false binary opposition between popular, just, you know, like poppy writing, right? And when, you know, the first rock critics emerged. And, and I, I, don't, I never see it as, as being completely binary. But maybe a question I would have is, when do you think the first good, serious writing about popular music was published? Well, I think you'd go back to 1926. You know, right. The first issue of Me- The Melody Maker okay. is an extraordinary document. It's 36 pages, and it raises issues around identity, race, authenticity, and it actually approaches them. I mean, there are some articles, I remember I interviewed John Peel, and he was hooting about this, there's an article about the place of the banjo in the modern orchestra. (laughs) But um, there are other articles where they argue about hot jazz, which was played by the African-American originals, Mm -hmm. and we're only, what, ten years into that? Only 26, maybe 50, I don't know the exact Mm -hmm. chronology. Mm -hmm. And then it's not as good as syncopated jazz or orchestral jazz, which right. is the lukewarm, white, right. European version right. of it, which is quite novelty. But there are those tensions... Already there. Already there. Ah, that's yeah. really and interesting. so they kind of... If you follow that path as well, you get to somebody like... Well, Max Jones in the 40s, actually, at Melody Maker, the permanently wearing... Very, very wearing. Very yes. and dark glasses yeah. wearing. Such a good idea, wasn't it? Because you could almost draw him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and a way of you know, making his alopecia hip. Yes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good thing. Always a good thing. I'm going to get a T-shirt with that. <laughs> but um, 
then you get Gloria Stavers at Sixteen magazine, mm. who understands that. I mean, Sixteen was launched on the back of some filched uh, photos of Elvis by these middle-aged blokes and a crooked guy whose name escapes me now. Luckily, he's dead, so I can say that. <laughs> um, they employed the glamorous Gloria Stavers mm -hmm. yeah. as a secretary and to open the post because there were just bags of posts to this 16 magazine from all over the US yeah, yeah. from young girls, mainly young girls. And she realised, being a woman as well, that here was the key to young female desires in popu popular culture as well. And rather than exploit it, she kind of met it halfway. And so she came up with the lingo, you know, photos were pics, yeah, yeah. issue was ish. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, there's all that yeah, stuff yeah, that goes on. And, you know, she, they gave her the budget to buy a decent camera. And so she took photos of these stars who were fairly sort of sub-Elvis they weren't rock and rollers, really. They were pop artists. And she'd ask for baby pics and favourites. <laughs> but what she was doing, and Dave Marsh says this in the book, was really forming the basis of what became known as rock criticism. So I think she's a very important person mm. and much overlooked because of her sex, basically, as is Ellen Willis, who yeah, I think is yeah. really the first recognisable proper writer about music and the your responses to it or one's responses to it. And that was in the New Yorker. That was in the New Yorker and she was that, that was selling what 500,000 copies an mm. issue. Yeah. So she's going out mm. there. And also Lillian Roxon. Yeah. As well the Australian. I mean you know I um, as everyone listens to this podcast knows I'm a complete fanboy of Maureen Cleave and Evening Standard. Right, yeah. And she's a sensational writer but yeah. doing really interesting interviews. I mean it's not rock criticism versus comments. I mean she does she does she'll do a little possible review of a single or an album but this is basically the interview. I think she stands head and shoulders above most rock interviewers yeah. right up to yeah. the present day. Yeah. You know, the woman who got John Lennon to say that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Right. You know? mm. And also just great writing. I mean, later on, when we go through what's new in the library, I've got a fantastic quote, her um, writing about Marianne Faithful in 1964. You know? So, yes, interesting that you should raise the fact that women writers were yeah. central. To I, I, I'm wondering now whether it was ever thus. If you think about the current crop of great writers about music, you have to think about Kate Mossman or, yeah. for me, Kitty Empire or Laura Barton. Yeah. Or I'm going to forget some now and they'll have a go at Well, Sylvia Patterson. Yeah. Uh, much Jude Rogers, Sean Jude Rogers, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. A terrific. And maybe it was ever thus because mm. I see a line between them and also Penny Valentine. And yes. Disc here and then later at Streetlight. Her articles about misogyny in the yep. music industry in 1975 mm. yeah. in Streetlight, yeah. a mandatory reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also, for a reader at the time, I was 15, and so, uh, you know, Streetlight was quite an interesting uh, proposition, wasn't mm. it? It wasn't quite successful, but it kind of ripped the band-aid mm -hmm. off the music industry or, and, indeed, the music press. Yeah. Yes. And so um, she was prepared, Val Wilmer... Yes. Think about the sterling work Coon. that she did. Caroline Coon. I mean, you write really about important. Caroline Coon and the resistance she encountered as Melody it? Maker. Yeah. Uh, uh, I when, she was, when she was you know, championing punk, she wanted to write about punk and the sort of relatively old guard of Yeah, but guys. I noticed that Michael Watts said, hey, look, we treated her really badly. But when she talks about going into the office, and this is pre-punk, when she was yeah. writing about great pieces about the Bass City Rollers and David Cassidy which yeah, none pieces. of the other papers were right. really addressing, no. apart from taking the piss. That's what they would do. Mm -hmm. If they wrote about those bands, 
who, after all, were selling vast amounts of records and tapping into some kind of mm. I mean, something. She was going into the office and she'd just get catcalls, mm. yeah. jeering. Yeah. Every time she went well, into the office, Valerie Bulmer is pretty withering about the misogynistic culture of Melody Maker, and she yeah. started writing Melody Maker what sixty seven, sixty eight around. I then. think a bit earlier, maybe a bit actually. earlier. And she said it was just like that then, you know. Yeah. Um, but but I mean, to, to, to be fair to the music press, I mean, we've been talking about the certain the big titles, but people like Record Mirror were writing about those pop groups very favourably when because they regard themselves as pop papers. Yeah. they weren't like the rock press. Yeah, so. yeah, that's well, true. I think one of the interesting things there is that when you think about pop, you're thinking about a whole wider cultural yeah, phenomenon yeah. <clears throat> and, and you're writing not just about the music. You're not just asking, well, what plectrum do you use or right. which amp are you playing through or whatever? Mm-hmm. And you're talking about people's lives and you're going back yeah. to those, going gathering baby pictures. That's, that's to bring someone a whole picture of, of a celebrity, of a, of a pop star, of a musician that doesn't just kind of make it very dryly about the music <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it talks about the culture yeah, around exactly music, doesn't it but but it's also the beginnings of what we'd now regard as kind of celeb culture yeah and these were our celebrities weren't yes. they? i mean if you think about the enemy in the 70s and actually probably i don't know by 77 maybe 78 maybe a bit earlier the five weekly music papers were selling close to a million copies a week yeah. That's a lot of mm-hmm, kids mm-hmm, and a lot of information mm-hmm. you're being turned on to. And also, you'd find out about, I mean, for me, being a completely surface animal, you know, Mick Jagger was wearing a pair of trainers on the tour. You know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, wow, that's a, that was a big move then for somebody like that to yeah, be yeah. wearing. And so that was our gossip. You know, mm-hmm. the thrills column would be full of stuff, which would now be on the front pages of, yes. if they still exist, the tabloids, you know. Or th- they, you know, I think know. in this connection, it's it's worth going back to 1966 and Paul Williams launching Core Daddy, Greg Shaw with Mojo Navigator Rock and Roll News, and the fact that they were a pair of like fanboys who'd been influenced by sci-fi fanzines yeah. and so forth, and it was very very male, quite geeky, quite sort of studenty appreciations of. Well, they deemed to be these new artists. It's not only just pop groups. The Beatles and Brian Wilson were, you know, heavyweight talents, which I would have agreed with. What's interesting in terms of talking about Mick Jagger's pants or whatever you guys are talking trainers, about. But we can talk about his pants. Well, well. Jan, Jan, Jan <laughs> Wenner, canny fucker that he is, grills both Paul Williams and Greg Shaw. And he, what he realises is that the 60s, quote-unquote, is becoming a business. Mm. It's becoming an industry. Yeah. So he takes what he sees what they've done, and it's like mimeograph fanzines, it's very low-level thing. But he can see that there's an opportunity to create a serious like magazine which is about the culture, about the personalities, the lifestyle, dope, protest, politics, everything. And it's it is it's genius. The timing of it. Is oh, sure, it, it's one of the greatest publishers ever, right? Yeah. Uh, but it all falls into place for him when he visits London and visits the offices of Melody Maker. Yes, he's given an intro to Max Jones. Yes, we might think of as one of the big stars of the music, one of the first mm-hmm. big stars of the music press, by Ralph Gleason, his yep. mentor. And he gets there, and I think he tries to pitch a review. Maybe it was published, maybe it wasn't. But he comes back to San Francisco and says, there is this magazine which is embedded in music, but it's got rigour to it. Mm. So this is a bunch of 
early middle-aged blokes yeah. tapping away, thrashing yeah. away on heavy typewriters, sleeves rolled up, knocking it out every week. And he sees how you, if you apply that rigour to the counterculture, it's not messy or fanzine you you're onto a winner. And, of course, he is. I mean, in a sense, you know, which is the cart, which is the horse, because I, I think what required that, and we're talking about criticism here rather than just music writing, and the, the idea of the review is the fact that suddenly people started making albums which demanded that degree of sophistication in the way in which they were criticised and written about, which is fine, as long as everyone's producing a Sgt Peppers or a Pet Sounds. The trouble with that is that then you apply that degree of criticism to the great swathes of, frankly, awful yeah. rock and roll music that came out subsequently. And it breaks down and suddenly actually you want to read about the people again and not some bloke's review of Split by the Groundhogs which I happen to think is a rather good album but you know uh, <laughs> that's all episode but, folks but 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 but, 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 but you know the, the, this, the, I, I really resist this notion that rock and roll journalism was invented in 1966-67 by American men I, I mm. just hate it because I think it's just wrong but don't you also think that the rock criticism didn't really stand up to scrutiny as as much as the music that was being made. I try and go back to those pieces and maybe I just haven't got the attention span I had then. I just get very tired. I find them very tiresome. Yeah, yeah. I won't name them. Some of them are still around. They really, <laughs> they're, they're really are stodgy. rather pleased with themselves uh, still. Uh, uh, yeah. And you look back at the stuff and you go, this does not bear scrutiny. Yeah. You go back to Ellen Willis's articles, mm. hell, yeah, yeah. it's all there. No, Some I, of her contemporaries in... The males are just like, wow, this is incredible, this ever got published. And I began to realise this very early on because I left school and home when I was very young and started as a hack, proper hack, Mm -hmm. when I was 18, two years before The Face was launched. And so I was already working in a, you know, very boring, it it was fun, a trade paper, and I could see through the journalism. And it wasn't just me as a then, by then, trained journalist. It was me as a punter as well. And one of the things that uh, emerged for me, it's funny how your perspective, well, obviously, your perspective changes Mm -hmm. over time. I went back to some of those enemies which I kind of celebrated in 2001 in Mm. In the Run Right. Damn, some of those articles really don't Mm. stand up. Apart from the casual sexism, racism and homophobia, you know. Sure. But, I mean, what's interesting, smash hits in the face pretty much open more or less the same time, don't they? They're yeah, launched, two years. Almost, yes. By the same person. What did they do? They got rid of reviews, almost entirely. Yeah. You yeah. know, you get a tiny capsule yeah. reviews here and yeah. there. At the back of the Faces book, there'll be a sort of handful of things. But they basically get rid of the review, and they start talking about the people. Which is what we all want to know. Which is what we all want <laughs> yeah. to know. All the, time, all <laughs> yeah. the way along yeah. since which, Maureen Cleave. Which Cleef. is what Maureen Cleave was doing in yeah. 1964 and the Evening Standard. And so it was a way of pulling the rug from under those people. Yeah. And, of course, they weren't very happy. You know, Lester Bangs wrote uh, this piece about The Clash. It was in three parts. That's awful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's one, one, one of the less good things. And I remember yeah. trying to read it as a 17-year-old and fan of The Clash at the time. Yeah. And it was just a waste yeah. of time. Yeah. And so you could see the, the culture was moving on they'd had their moment mm-hmm. and it was over and really you could see that the emperor had no clothes yeah. and yeah. it's interesting that that's where rolling stone becomes a more and more difficult magazine to write yes of some fantastic interviews and features but the primacy of the record the album review just staggered on three and a half stars right 
Yeah. Yeah. Everything has three and a half stars. <laughs> yeah. you know? Because um, it's all three and a half star material. It's I mean, if we go back to, you know, the theme of, of sort of sexism and misogyny and how few female writers, let alone black writers, were mm-hmm. able to break into the club, right? One of the pieces that we're featuring on the homepage is, is this, it's from 1973. There's this California magazine called Coast, which was like a lifestyle magazine. And the cover of this April 73 issue is, is the, the headline is Rock Critics Rule. And inside, they talk to 27 American rock critics about how they see the state of music. And it's Lester Bangs, it's Richard Mel, it's the, the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the year they all got together for the rock crits it convention? It is, precisely, precisely. They must have yeah. done it there or something, because they're all in the same place. So not a woman or a person of colour among them. One. Although the intro Young, claims that three right. women right. responded to the right. request. <laughs> <laughs> they were all sent these questions, and three women responded, but I can only see one woman, right. Nancy Erdich, in, in the... Right. It, the, the rest are is like a sort of gallery of noise boys and yeah. irreverent alcoholics, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right? Such a charming combo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we're also featuring this hilarious piece called How to Be a Rock Critic, which was put together by a woman called Deanne Stillman, who came on board couple of years ago and she assembles all these quotes it was this sort of seven easy lessons on how to be a rock <laughs> critic it's, it's quite amusing so we, we've, we've added that as well i mean to so it was i was very interested in what you said about the first issue of melody maker and the sort of the, the, the theme of intellectual snobbery which in a sense is is what we're discussing and i to jump forward you know, quite quite radically from 1926 or whatever it was, <laughs> you address this moment when Nick Logan, who you, you know did the story of the Facebook with, moves across the road to the Smash Hits office. And I was working in the enemy office, not in 78 or 9, yeah, whatever that was, yeah. but I remember Smash Hits. We could look down and peer into the Smash Hits office. Didn't Neil Tennant, didn't they put up uh, the, their circulation figures? circulation figures. Stuck into <laughs> the window. I, I, I don't remember that. was probably before I, I, I joined. But I do remember <laughs> that, that so sort good. of turning point, right. you know, that right. we, we were on the tide going out, and this was the, the tide that was coming in. Yeah. And, you know, I suppose the sort of, you know, the enemy had had sort of, in some respects, disappeared up its own arse in terms of, you know, the obscurantism of its references and the Morley and manera. <laughs> and it's I, ironic that Nick Logan, who brought in all those wild writers, right. kind of basically tipped them out the kind of back well, door. Well, he, underst- he understood. He understands He understood. Pop. No, he understands pop. Pop is action reaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pop is straight trousers and flares. You know, <laughs> yes. Pop is long hair and skinhead. Yes. So he understands the pop process in a publishing context. Yeah. Yes. And a cultural context. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, exactly. Because he's an old mod, so he's totally into visual culture. And so I think that it gave him great joy as well to pull the rug from under the enemy because he never felt like he'd been valued there. He mm-hmm. was paid a pittance to <laughs> handle these maniacs, which he bought on board which were selling, you know, enormous amounts of ads and, you know, copies for him. But I think that also the, the conversation went elsewhere and he's ever the zeitgeist ride, rider. Yeah, yeah. And so by 81, I happen to think that uh, Paul Morley and Ian Penman are the last great blast of inky music journalism. I thought that the way that they operated in terms of... They were saying, 
look, you can call us pretentious, but what we're trying to do is strive a new, fa- a new way forward. Sometimes it worked because it reflected the ways in which rock music in particular was trying to move forward. Mm. And so I think, as you say, the tide was leaving uh, the enemy behind. And Smash Hits, it, it was time for Smash Hits as well. It was time for The Face. And if you look at Smash Hits in the 80s, I mean, it's a pretty damn good magazine. Yeah, it's great. I would Absolutely say it's probably fabulous. one of the best. But the whole thing is more complex anyway than, mm. it, than, it, than it might appear to be. Because, of course, Paul Morley was writing about what he called new pop. Right. In the enemy, I mean, he was the one who got Kim Wilde on the cover, Dollar. And, and, and Dollar, yeah. and, and then of course ZTT and yeah. Frankie goes to Hollywood. So it's hardly as if Paul was some sort of reactionary looking yes, down very on true. smash hits, yeah. but he was just doing it in a different. But way. I think they had to shoulder the blame, didn't they? When it when it all started to go bandy you know, for I, the enemy, I, I have said this before. My idea of hell is a three thousand words Ian Pemmon interview with Green from Scritti Politi because I will not understand a single word they're saying. Right. Unless you've got a degree in French literature, you know, right. philosophy. Did either of them have them? Have those? No. no. Of not. <laughs> but, but for me, it was kind of quixotic. Right. So I quite enjoyed it. But then by 81, I was reading The Face. I was reading yeah. Smash Hits mm. if I wanted to know about pop. And so I think that this story is about that action reaction as right. well. And so we go from Rolling Stone to Sniffing Glue. Or temporary hoarding, which isn't even stapled, is it? It's just one big thing yeah. you stick on the wall as a poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and that squat. that kind of yeah, exactly. That <laughs> responds to and also drives popular music and popular culture. So I think that's where it's a really great thing to study because it's such a weather vane. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. You talk in the book about you know just jumping off from what we've been talking about that the, the birthday party. Uh, there's a hilarious, I think, sort of you know. Because I wrote about the birthday party and so did Matt Snow and others. And there was this, there was a sort of sense of, well, we hate all this kind of video synth pop. It's so fluffy and pointless. and, it, and Inauthentic. It, well, I don't think I used that word. But I mean... That's the word though, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> In a sense, Nick Cave represented the sort of last gasp of, you know, that very self-destructive, charismatic... Leather trouser wearing. Nietzschean, you know, heroin <laughs> fueled, like, right? Just like we're riding the train to hell here. And, and I got caught up in that. And so I think you have, like, Paolo Hewitt or someone saying, you know, in a very snooty way... Barney thinks that we were pissed off about the birthday party. We weren't even thinking about the birthday party. <laughs> Ooh, you know. And, and there's, some, there's funny, a lot though. of truth to that, of yeah. course. But Nick Cave, nonetheless, was a, was a, you know, he's still a huge star. I mean, he has, unlike a lot of those mm. 80s acts, mm. he's still, like, mm-hmm. recognised as a sort of major artist. I wanted to touch on the subject of the sort of hostility between <laughs> artists and journalists and in the light of that some listeners will know about the notorious song scum that nick cave wrote about music journalists um, about Matt Snow. and so i'm just gonna <laughs> we're just going to hear this i i had forgotten that there's this audio interview we have on the back page from 1986 well i'm just gonna play it right. because it is really rather extraordinary and then we'll, we'll talk about the, the mutual loathing between <laughs> <laughs> See, here, here are a whole lot of scums. There's one. This is about you. You. No, no, let's forget you. This is about you. This is a recorded one, I think. I mean, this is just to kind of uh, 
and pastime. I mean, I write really well. Uh, I really write really hate lyrics really well, and um, really nasty lyrics really well. And it's not every day. It's not every day you can kind of use them really. There's another one. This actually, I mean, yeah. But this is only this particular. Just back onto that subject. This particular song was uh, just. Um, I mean, when you're in the studio, you, you don't just go in there with your ten songs and record them. You work on various things and uh, a bit of cheap, kind of aggressive, filth music came up, and um, that was the seemed to be the kind of vehicle for these lyrics or something. Can I have a look at one about me? No. Why not? Because there's there's uh, only certain of the lyrics that I've chosen to sort of sing. And um, I mean, in this particular book, I indulge myself to the limits. You know, I mean, I don't have any problems about a journalist looking inside this or whatever. I mean, I, I just, you know, I don't have to show this to anyone. I can write whatever I like in this book. Well, it's an extraordinary moment. I mean, can I have a look? <laughs> yes. yeah, Matt, I mean, his genial yeah, self, yeah, just yeah. like quite amused by this. But this song has become sort of notorious, and I, it I was don't about know what the rest of Black as well. It's about it? Antonella Black, yeah. exactly. What I don't, you know, I always sort of think. I mean, in a sense, how sad to be writing fucking songs about music. It's pathetic. Just. It's absolutely pathetic. I don't know. I think I think it's quite You funny. quite like it. Yeah, I okay. do. Because I think what Cave identified there was that, you know, music journalists can be above themselves. Mm. And when you're a musician, there is that very difficult thing that it's a kind of symbiotic relationship, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. You know you're locked into this dance of death in a way that at one point one or the other is going to overcome it and matt actually told me that he kind of provoked that by writing in a review i've heard the new nick cave record Mm. this one by blixer bargeld is far better so he was already engaging in one upmanship and so his cave responding with his you know his which I, which I, I still I find really pathetic. Exactly. Somebody just saying somebody else's they prefer well, these, someone these, else's these record to yours. These are pop stars, you know. What, what do you expect? No, like, <laughs> what about what well, about you know, what I, about Dylan attacking Max Jones in Ballad of sure, a Thin Man? Ballad of a Thin Man. So <laughs> is that thin skinned? Yeah. Yes, of course it is. And the great story of, of, of Dylan <laughs> being thrown out of the Melody Maker offices. Yes, exactly, because they were on press day, weren't they? And he was a nobody. Nineteen sixty. Too. He wants to meet Max. Max Jones again. And yeah. rereading your book, I was, it was Bob Dorban who actually threw Bob yeah. out because no one knew Bob was. He's yeah. a skinny fucking run. And Dylan introduced the song in Japan in I don't know the eighties, fairly relatively recently, maybe the nineties. 
by going on about mm. this was about a guy who asked me too many questions. Yeah. Uh, it still <laughs> happens, right, that, like, musicians now, I mean, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think it was Lizzo who at one point tweeted about some review that she'd yeah. received being like, how can you write all this stuff? You don't know what goes into my art and yeah. this and that. <laughs> yeah. and I think there is a kind it's of valid. sense of... Do you think that's valid? Well, I, I think don't, it's valid. I don't, I don't, I don't know <laughs> I think it's valid. I think, it's, I think there's a kind of element to which it... Musicians feel like they're doing something that is sincere and bearing their soul and all right. this stuff, and then it's kind of thrown out to the jackals to sort of tear it apart. Right. And there's a kind of there's a kind of <laughs> sense in which music journalism, I can imagine, would feel a bit like people are just trying to profit out of you rather it's than. It's a perfect for, for storm of idiocy on both sides. You've got you know music journalists who are far too smug and pleased with what they bloody do, writing about musicians who are far too pleased and smug about what they do. <laughs> Frankly, they can all go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but we wouldn't. Have, we, I don't know. It, it adds to the kind of um, gaiety of. Yeah, the gaiety of life and the music press. But also what it does do is attest to the power of music journalists at a certain point. Well, if Cave wasn't worried, not worried, concerned or affected by whatever Matt Snow was going to mm. write, he wouldn't have written it. He'd have gone, oh, I don't really give him Yeah, but as you, I think that power's always been mythical. I don't think that power ever existed in the way that either musicians or music journalists... But cer like certain musicians perceived it, whether, whether right. it actually okay. existed or not. And I think that that still goes on. I mean, there were big rows uh, vibe over their star system. And right. I think, I can't remember who the act was, but they gave them four stars mm. rather than five. And it eventuated in physical threats, you exactly. know. So mm. it continues to this day, as you say. Lizzo's on Twitter having a go. I think it's fair game, actually. As a hack, you've got to respect it. And there are lots of Not songs. Not necessarily. There are lots of songs about music critics, aren't there? I yeah. mean, you know, when you sit down and start to think about it, I mean, like that, I'm just off the top of my head, the Prince song, All the Critics Love You in New York. Right, right. You mentioned in that, in that section where you write about the underground mags and fanzines, particularly American ones, you mentioned that Ben is Dead and so forth. Uh, you mentioned that. Sonic Youth song, which oh, I'm yeah. going to ask you to I recite kill Chris, the title. I kill... Oh God, it's a tongue twister. I kill, I kill Chris, Chris Gow with my big fucking dick. That's was, the one. That's the ditty in which question. Which was circulated, I think it was a flexi. I think right. it was a flexi disc. With forced exposure. Forced exposure. Which was yes. a, great, a great magazine. I don't yes. know if you've got any uh, copies uh, here, yeah. but a really good magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this was a response to Robert Criscow's... Uh, what's he, what does he call himself? The Pope? Dean. The Dean, the Dean of Rock Critics. Yeah. The Dean of American Rock Critics. Come on, you're sending yourself up there, mate, for yeah, sure. uh, well, a bit of a... <laughs> believe me, I, I, I can very happily yeah. be part of the... You know, but it's funny as well. Down. For me, it's quite funny to see these people indulge in these kind of very petty, I, I accept, spats. But it, as I say, it adds to the uh, flavour yeah. a bit. But um, I think The Fall recorded a song as recently as 2010 about a journalist from Uncut who'd accused... And having written the book, I can't mm. remember a bloody thing about it, <laughs> but he'd accused Marky Smith of some particular it, it kind of... Pretty ineffectual activity, and Marky Smith had got his uh, nose on the joint over that. So yeah. it, it continues yeah. to this day. I mean, even, for me, the whole hated everyone. You've got to be yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, a more genial <laughs> sort of example is, is, is Garden Party by Rick Nelson. Oh, really? Yeah, which I is, which is a dig at critics who were attacking him for that show not just being a, like a rock and roll revival. Mad Madison, 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 Madison Square, Square Garden. Garden, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That big the gap being the garden. Because he was writing new songs in a kind of country rock vein. Yeah. And, and these, these old guard critics thought he should just be singing, you know, 
and so all of this i think you know underlines the pa- the perceived power if mm. it was an actual power of mm. the music press because these were magazines that were selling in their hundreds of thousands yeah, yeah. rolling stone vibe in the 90s and now what has happened it's really the through line of my book is mm-hmm. that what was once a mass activity both in terms of consumption and production mm-hmm. is now a niche activity yes and so the circulations have shrunk of print, but also the attentiveness to online outlets is really quite small. Or is it fragmented? It's very difficult right. to say. But this was something that a million copies of the Inkies were selling in the 70s. Yeah. A lot of kids, a lot of pass on. There's a lot of people turning on to information, some of which would be vanguard. Mm. But there are various mm. reasons for that, and I hope I elucidate them in the book. You Then there's things like how do you write about music, which is very hard, simply very hard to write about, and specifically dance culture, where the artist didn't vanish but really went into the background. Yeah. And so you've got this whole rash of magazines appeared in the late eighties, well nineties, particularly in this country. You know, music, mixed mag, jockey slut, and mixed so on mag so was a great magazine. I Absolutely. Think, yeah. And they're trying to write about something which is actually really hard to write about. Well, no, I think that they took up the baton from The Face in particular. Yeah. And with The Face, Nick Logan made a statement that mu- popular music is much more than just music. It's, it's about, about the culture that surrounds yes, it. Clothes, it's it's and, lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, we can exactly. encapsulate in that. And that's why the, some of the dance magazines, for me, were really successful. Yeah, yeah. Because they encapsulated the lifestyle. Yeah, they wrote yes. about the drugs, they wrote about all of that sort of, sort of side. Um, but it is very, nonetheless... If you, to write about, you, you can interview a certain handful of people. So, very interesting going through Mixmag, for example. You're much more likely to get an interview with a hip-hop artist than you are with DJs, because a hip-hop artist is an artist, inverted commas, right. who represents as a person the music he's making and vice right. versa. Right. DJ interviews are inherently deeply unsatisfactory things. So, so it's curious, you, you get this magazine where there's the big interviews with a hip-hop artist or a, a, a DJ who's just got an ego as big as Van Buren's, for example, I'm on, you know, Van Helder, you know. Right. You get something like that. And then the rest of it's sort of club reports and photographs of women, blurred street flashlit pictures of women not wearing much in the way of clothing. Uh, I just, I find the dance music publication stuff very, because I, mean, I became a very late stage raven, so I, I became fascinated by the stuff. And I, <coughs> you obviously are much keener on those publications than I am. Right. I struggle with them. because right. the, 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 But that's because you're used to the music press being in some way... About people. A traditional... Well, I'd say that... Well, about a start about artists. But if the music press... It, it depends how you define it to sure. yourself. And one of the ways you can define it is in communicating mm-hmm. music in all of its forms. And I think the dance music titles, music press titles of their day communicated the joy the abandon the lifestyle as much as somebody reviewing the pink fairies for the enemy in 1974 yeah yeah no i i, I see equivalence you see that's yes. really my thing is to kind of draw equivalence right i hope where it does where it exists rather than where it doesn't exist what you're saying about fragmentation and niches 
I think kind of in parallel with that, what we have to recognise is that I would say in the 80s, the the big iconic pop and rock and soul acts you would only have been able to read about in the weeklies or Rolling Stone or Cream. By the end of the 80s, you could read about them everywhere. Mm. And they were everywhere. They were just part of the cultural wallpaper. Mm. Yes. And so we're talking Madonna, U2, Prince, whatever. It, it, I mean, George we're Michael. talking about the, the dawn press. of celebrity the, culture yeah, yeah. Where, where, you know, where, when you read The Enemy as a sort of schoolboy, mm. you felt like you had some ownership, mm-hmm. of, even like the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. I mean, when mm-hmm. I went to see the Stones at Earl's Court in 76, yeah, it still yeah. didn't, it still felt like you were part of some kind of underground tribe mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. some ways, even though Mick was was a superstar mm. but by i would say by the 80s by the end of the 80s all of these stars had become absolutely become household I names. think it's really beginning there and it's John yep. Blake who's the very clever person right. who understood the sun's that, pop correspondent yeah mm. that he could take from the pages of the enemy and so George O'Dowd's uh, problems in 86 yeah, yeah. 87 then yes. become front page news they become everyday gossip so we're heading towards that but really for me it's Britpop where mm. it kind of goes out to national and it's kind of the end of it as well right. it's the death and that's now. the lad mags that's, that, that's deluded it's about well, very I'm, much part of well, the select about, so you make this point very well in the book that Brit- Britpop almost killed the, the UK music press. I think it did because it was the, the information information was available about these people yeah, yeah. was available everywhere but it was actually in the main I, I hang on the front cover of the tabloids it the was in national media yes. and so the arguments over the release of uh, Country House and Roll With It or yeah, whatever yeah. the single was is the lead item mm-hmm. on the news at 10 yes. yes and everybody from as somebody says in the book Alan Jones I think everybody from angling news to motorcycle rider had their oasis yeah. story yes. and so why why buy the music press Quite, simultaneously yes. the enemy launches its website and it's free and yeah. so why are you going to buy a magazine i was uh, about to say that there's something else at play when it comes to the internet that causes part of what we now have which is there are still music publications there are still online music publications but two things happen which is that a it becomes much easier for anybody to talk about music in the way that previously only music critics were given a platform to talk about music Mm -hmm. when we think about blogs we think about video reviews that people now put on youtube i would say that the most i've probably said this before on the podcast but the most well-known music critic online is a guy called anthony fantano who makes video reviews about and he's really reviewing albums but he's doing it in form of video rather mm. than in form of writing and he gets a much bigger audience than anybody writing for for rolling stone sure. or how big is his audience do you know millions uh, millions yeah right okay and and then there's this well, other factor which is that, that it <laughs> <laughs> that it's it's much easier for artists now to talk directly to yeah, their fans yeah, yeah. you know you don't need to go and read an interview with lizzo or Billie eilish or drake when you can go on their Instagram or their TikTok and yes. watch them talk to, to you so directly. Well, well, a, a really good, good example, my girlfriend's 14-year-old daughter, Minecraft is her thing, and there's this band called Lovejoy, who are a bunch of, sort of gapyard chaps, you know, from the South Coast. And that's how they promote themselves, yeah. effectively through Minecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's you know so so it's not for us that's for sure well, which is uh, in, which in itself is interesting I, I like the fact I it's would not say for us. that just as song sheets went to records you know in the thirties so this is just a change of delivery yeah, format uh, yeah and so 
and very people. tightly targeted yeah. at, at a very specific audience. Yeah, and well. so um, access, and it's kind of egalitarian, which I really yes. like as well. But also, also exclusive. There is no longer the dean yes. of rock criticism. Mm. It's for fucking but it's everybody. Also, but no, it, but it's not for us. It well, isn't for and it, depends, I, I, it depends on whether you yeah. want to... In and with the nature of the internet means it's a lot of different salami slices which can be put onto various different platforms and directed very specifically at the people whom you want to direct it. Not their parents, not their mum and dad, but you. Well, we're all uh, niche creatures, aren't what, we? But yes. what that also means is that that feeling, Barney, that you were talking about of being part of a club, of buying the NME, of the, that hasn't been lost. No, that no, still exists. No, no. Even when you think yeah. about the biggest pop stars in the world, groups like BTS, K-pop stuff, yeah, yeah. their fans really see themselves mm. as being a part of almost like a movement yes. of like a, you know, a fan group yeah. that crosses country borders, crosses cultural borders, and, and it's, really, it's cross, really important yes, as a, in a personal doesn't sense. doesn't really cross age group borders, and I think this is really important, is that, that there is a worldwide audience of people between 13 and 16, for example, that the chances of these children's parents being interested in what these bands are doing is frankly minimal. But aren't we, aren't we going back to the 50s and early 60s? I mean, McLaren said, you know, his avowed intent, one of his avowed intents with the Sex Pistols was to create a generation gap. Yeah. And so the idea is that the power of popular music resides with young people. Yeah. And it's it for always young has. people. And so there we go, yes. you know. Yeah. So I don't think there's any. In that 2002 piece we were talking about earlier, which we're featuring on the homepage, which is, you know, I think. Some of this material is in Totally Wired. Right. You quote a fellow called Alfie Lewis, who I think is the publisher of Top of the Pops magazine. That's right, yeah. Alfie Lewis. And he talks about there are so many external factors competing with CD sales and so forth. Any kid who was going to spend money elsewhere, like getting a mobile phone, has got that now. Now, this is 2002. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when we think about our, our use and you'd go and buy this magazine or that magazine and you'd spend money on you know you know what whatever as a consumer as a as a fan as as someone in in the tribe yeah. you know now you know all this time later everything is like condensed down into this this single device you carry around everything is there mm-hmm. and your attention is so scattered you know that there's no one place you're going to I, for information. I'm not sure I agree with that. So I think that people find their places like we found our. Well, there are some places, yes. You, you know, but it isn't like the NME. Well, it's their version of it. But what is it? Well, tell, tell me what it is. It's very different from anything mm-hmm. we But it'll be like, to. you know, in some cases it might be a subreddit about an artist, it or might a, be a, a TikTok, TikTok account. It could even be a fan account yeah. th- uh, that people follow, uh, fans of an artist follow another fan yeah. who sure. curates yeah. a set of content, it, videos, it, pictures. It, the method is entirely different. But yes. actually I think what you're saying, and I think that Jasper and I agree, is that it's the same sort of degree of concentration mm-hmm. of this is where... My my stuff is. This is where I think it's more diffuse. I think it's more diffuse. That's all. I would say it's not quite so monocultural. Maybe, but I think that the intensity and the passion and the the feeling that you get from it is very much the same. I think I don't dispute that. I'm not really sure the method of delivery matters that much, except in the sense that you know it's meant that most print pop magazines have died it's just because they they couldn't move on with the the changes mm. in technology it's it's not a format that really carries that much 
wait and, and as we any all, longer as we for various very the, reasons. The, the way that people consume music is very different now. Mm. Yes. Uh, 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 and so that the, the, the way in which people consume it and the music itself become deeply related to one another, it, it's very much harder to describe in the way that we can describe the music press. You know, because it's just, as you say, it's a million different things. But if you're part of that scene, mm. it's every bit as much sort of, you know, as, as about you uh, and about your tribe and all of the same sort of things. And you don't that need... Rock and roll's always been It's about. an interesting point you just made. Is the way we listen to music has changed. You don't need a record review any longer if you can just go and listen to the record for nothing sure. immediately. Yeah. I mean, maybe it comes down to, in the end, I mean, it is a generational thing, and maybe it comes down to, do you actually care about mm. reading particularly sort of long-form writing whether it's critical writing or biographical writing do you need ab- to about did we ever it's need about, to <laughs> no, no, it's, to me it's about do you enjoy it i mean but I, 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 but I think I, there is a lot of that material out there you know yeah. if you think about what kate mossman does at the new statesman mm. you know i keep well, on saying this the best bit of music journalism by which i mean the one which left its greatest mm-hmm. impact on me was Ian Penman writing about Solange Knowles in the LRB yes I think in January or maybe a year ago yeah and so it's still there that stuff is still there there mm. was the Oxford I know this uh, person Elizabeth Nelson who writes for uh, an American oh, the American. Oxford American the Oxford, yeah, Oxford American. American yeah so, great pieces in there so it's it's still there yes. if you if you, if want, you want it, it. What I was going to say about the interesting thing for me is that the technology is often in lockstep or driving Mm -hmm. what's happening in music. And so you've got funk now through TikTok, P-H-O-N-K, which is mishmashing, you know, songs from the past which pop up to a generation which have never heard them before. Mm. And they start creating music for that format in the same way that the single... It's difficult to tell that the single then dominated songwriters to write three-minute songs. Yes. Or the album then made sure that people made four, you know... Yeah, yeah, four, substantial pieces of co- co- you know, coherent and comprehensive yeah. work, or so they hoped. And know. so I, I, that's the really interesting thing for me, but that's slightly outside of mm. the what we understand as the music press. I just think it's, been, it's dangerous to be nostalgic... Yeah, in a way. Absolutely. I mean, so as the paradox says, that all, all of our am business. Am I not allowed? To the, be no, you're absolutely not, Barney. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the irony is that Rock's Back Pages is very much about. But actually, it isn't. What we're about is about showing what people were saying at that mm. time about and, and how they were delivering it. And, and how they, exactly. Yeah. So it, it isn't an exercise in nostalgia. It's what I believe. It's what what do the academics call it. Um, Retromania. No reception studies. Reception studies. You know. Yeah. But it's not an exercise in nostalgia. I I, I just don't feel nostalgic but about I, I felt rock and roll I felt like I, I felt a bit evangelistic and I think that's what happens when you write books is you want to present information that yeah, yeah. isn't out there before and so it was important for me really to talk about black music and Carl yes. Gale because I really you read his stuff you and you've got mm. his, some of his no, articles no we haven't no, we, haven't. we would love Wish to get Carl but, um, but he's, I don't he's still know where he is he's in Jamaica he is due. due oh, well, we'll have a separate conversation. But, um, <laughs> so, but it was important for me. Let's do some business. Um, but um, it was important for me to kind of say, yeah, this is really great music journalism, yeah, yeah. written at the same time as the so-called golden age. You know, from seventy-three to seventy-eight, or whenever mm-hmm. he was writing, at the same time as talking about Ben is dead in America. I wanted to even 
to avoid that nostalgic yeah. trap by saying to people who would know the enemy and Melody Maker mm-hmm. and Time Out, maybe we haven't talked about Time Out, but put them in the context of these other magazines yeah. which were very active, which yeah. didn't last very long sure. sometimes. There were beautiful yeah, little yeah. episodes in publishing about music yeah. and so but, i wanted to create a whole of it which wasn't nostalgic writing history isn't that exercise in nostalgia exactly it's, it's about writing history that's what i wanted to do yes. and my problem with a lot of present company accepted of course uh, <laughs> with a lot of music books is that for a start they're not journalistic enough mm-hmm. and as a trained hack you know that that kind of prickles but also they are largely in exercises in nostalgia in it was great then it's Mm. not so great now Mm. do you think and this is possibly a slightly funny thing to ask you having written a book called the rise and fall of the music press Mm -hmm. do you think that there ever was or is any such one thing as the music press yeah it's difficult isn't it it's difficult because once you it's one of those things you think oh yeah i know what that is and once you put it under the microscope it starts wriggling around you go oh wait a minute (laughs) was it time out the early issues Mm -hmm. That would have been, or was was that underground press? Mm. Was Friends in its various yeah, yeah. variations? The music, of course, it was. Nick Kent, Penny Smith worked there. Exactly. They were, you know, covering. They were music journalists in their way. So it is a difficult yeah. thing to pin down, even yeah. still. For I'm me. so glad you mentioned Time Out. Right. Because <laughs> it's the perfect segue to the week's new audio interview. Mark, who is it? Yeah, it's says Tony Elliott, the founder, proprietor of, of Time Out. Uh, interviewed by Frank Broughton in 1998. So he starts off by talking about start setting it up as a project at university in 1968. And he, he said, you know, at the time, he read the underground press, but he, he says, I wasn't a dope-smoking hippie. You know, and this is quite important. So he was... The culture of the underground press was really important. And through that, I think he learnt that there were a lot of things out there which weren't being dealt with by the mainstream media so so everything from what's in fact he claims that they na- they named it fringe theater to to you know uh, to lectures at universities which public could go to and so on and so forth and of course kind of pop stuff well we'll listen to this clip if you were attached in some way to that kind of alternative underground mm. society and culture you didn't that's not only the, the only thing that you consumed. I mean, how you know you can't spend your whole yeah. life kind of going to listen to Pink Floyd and go to poetry readings and you know being shouted at at you know radical theatre groups um, driving around the bend. You know, so so you so you mix in with that kind of you know um, good continental films. Yeah. You know, which were and um, which were being shown in places like the Paris Pullman and the Academy Cinema and the African Hampstead, and you'd also go and see. Rock band, you know, so mm. people like you know John Mayall, who had Eric Clapton playing at the time, which then moved quite quickly, or Eric Clapton moved very quickly into being Cream, and you know, even and, and even and Led Zeppelin were kind of starting at the time. You know, I, I regret to this day that I didn't go and see them playing in the pubs then, you know, because there wasn't, a, I suppose, maybe I was not talking to the right people, right? So sort of, there wasn't a big buzz about it in a way. But the Rolling Stones, you know, who were who were world famous at that stage. I mean, they were considered part, how you know, except part of the kind of package that, yeah. that was sort of, you know, kind of part of that you bought into. He 
talks about then from there how they extended to editorial content about the use of the interview, the feature writers. There's interesting details about how the hold the left had on the paper before the 1981 NUJ strike and how, for example, they couldn't have a gay section, according to the left, because that was ghettoising homosexuality. After the strike, they could do that. And actually, I think Time Out was a very important part of gay liberation in London. And then, you know, yeah, the, the mistakes, the, the successes and failures and missing punk and club culture. There was a there was a era certainly in the last sort of from the middle middle seventies to eighty one where some of the magazine reactions and judgments got a bit warped in the sense that because there were too many rather opinionated people who had who had very political views of life who were sort of rather pushing things to the in and so we had things like um, I mean in that period for example Time Out failed literally completely failed to cover punk properly. I mean, it caught up in the air. Besides um, most people. I mean, you well, know, most, most people, yeah. it caught them by surprise, and most, yeah. of the, most of the press reaction was you know, yeah. adverse. But I think the, pro- the, 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 the trouble there, there were two problems. I mean, one, the editor of the, at the time was just had his eye off the ball because he, he didn't see it, and he was more interested in sort of rather, you know, kind of rock bands and yeah. pubs. And, um, and the, other, the other thing that would have happened was that the sort of... Um, the, the, the sort of articulate lefties would have sort of said, oh, we don't want to write about right. You know, why are you writing about these kind of, you know, young bands? I mean, you know, what are, you know, just sort of rather dismissed it. And more importantly, or as importantly, for example, we just, we missed out completely on the uh, birth of club culture with all the um, Steve Strange's club, what's it called? Blitz. Heroes and Blitz, Blitz, Blitz yeah. Kids and all that kind of stuff, which I think started about 78, yeah. probably. Um, which all got rather dismissed as being, you know, by certain of the sort of senior edit- editorial people who were rather left-wing and, and as being sort of frivolous and, mm. you know, people wearing, men wearing makeup and, you know, it was all sort of dismissed, you know. Now, Paul, you probably know... City Limits was set up... When was City Limits? 81, 80, right? 80, so it's after it was, a, it was an outcome of the strike. And it was the left-wing people who had basically been pushed out of time out. Some of them, yeah. But there was some... There, and also, there were some great writers among them. Yeah, yeah. You've got to think about Cynthia Rose, or yes. those people yeah, who yeah, came yeah, to... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. City Limits was a great Chris magazine. Chris Bond was on... Was on I think it's interesting, because I talked to Tony for the exhibition I had about independent magazines at Somerset House mm-hmm. in 2018 and he was great he gave me a day and we, we had lunch then went over to his place and he gave me a day and we talked about it a lot and he was saying he was telling me about the birth of Time Out mm-hmm. with of course Whispering Bob right as well. of course the yes. two of them went into, University. went into IT I think they'd been uh, street selling IT uh, that was the way times, you kind yeah. of got into yeah. the underground press as a street yeah. seller. Felix Dennis was one for Foles magazine. That was Felix Dennis' business, magazine. Yeah. And so they went in and said, hey, look, there was a, it's called What's On or something like that. It's got a crappy title. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really higgledy-piggledy, badly laid out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and Mick Farron told me for the book as well, none of them could be asked to do it because yeah, they yeah. were stoned all the time or just too damn lazy. Yeah, yeah. And here were these two kids who say... 
we can sort this out for you. And they basically told them to fuck off. Yeah. And so those two went, okay, all right. And so that's why they did it. And a lot of it sprang from Tony's own interest in, as you said, fringe theatre. Yeah, yeah. He came from a background, I don't know whether his mother was involved in drama or something, but he was very interested right. in what was happening with the living theatre and all that experimental mm, yes. stuff, yeah. and he wasn't seeing that reflected. Yeah. And so I think it came from that. As to his talk about punk, by 76, and I remember this very well as a Londoner who had read Time Out, Time Out had kind of gone off the boy. It yeah. was great for arts coverage. There weren't that many galleries around. But there were great writers like Sarah Kent. But it seemed like a very old-fashioned... It was only eight years old by that point. Yeah. Very old-fashioned publication mm. to be even engaging yeah, with yeah. if you were associated with punk. So I, I think there was a... There was a, it was a two-way thing. Yeah. I don't think the punk bands wanted to be in there. No. Because it was read by Longhairs. Yeah. I, know, I, I remember sitting in the speed <laughs> run by Longhairs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paul just pointed rather pointedly at me. <laughs> um, Never trust a hippie. I, 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 I must admit, I, I found, even though I'm, 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 I'm on the left... So I'm, I'm just not, jealous, yeah, by the way. Yeah. I'm not on, <laughs> not on the Trotskyite left, but I found Sitting in really refreshing. I mean, because yeah. it... it at a time when Thatcher had just been elected, when the lines were being drawn, the, sure. the, yeah. the minor strike was, was just, beginning to bite, wasn't just it? around the corner. Yeah, and City that spoke to that and made the time out just simply didn't. Yeah, no, it, it was great. Let's not forget event as well. Richard Branson's entry oh, into the market. <laughs> I had clean yeah, forgot me too. I, I, <laughs> I still have a copy with Madness where they had a flexi disc on the cover. It was for Take It or Leave It, their album, well, their <laughs> film. 1980. It's worth and a so lot of money now. Paul. It's interesting, the story of the music... Yeah, it must be 20p or something. But it's interesting, the story of the music press, there are all these people trying to get in there yeah, all yeah. the time. Branson repeatedly, mm. starting with Student out of the underground press, but then uh, also New Music News, right. which was Felix Dennis's... You talked about the strike. It's 1980. That was the strike-breaking strike one night, yeah. in 1980 as well as 81. Yeah. And so he leapt in there knowing that... For a period, he could suck up all the advertising. Yeah. And so he was constantly trying to get in on uh, the music press. And, of course, he did later on with Blender in yes, the 90s. But, but, yes. I, mean, it, what, what, yes. I mean, it was Kung Fu magazines which really made... Which made his money, yeah. Money. Bruce Lee. He was a hell of a character. I, yeah, I remember yeah. going to meet him with I, Matt Snow. And you never forgot it, that experience. It, it, <laughs> yeah, if you read the transcripts from the Oz trial, the judge, this awful judge... <laughs> who sent them down yes. sneered at him saying oh the other two are sort of you know, yeah, yeah, you'll never come to anything you're class and educated you'll never come to anything and he's the one who went on to make millions millions oh his own island listen yeah. we, we are, we're coming to the end of the time that we have to talk about your fantastic comprehensive definitive book Paul it's really been Wonderful speaking with you. And we could talk it. about this all day. <laughs> this could night. be a, a, a week long podcast. <laughs> people bringing in refreshments. With occasional break for lunch. But I would just say to any listeners who found any of this remotely interesting, do go and buy Paul's book, Totally Wired The Rise and Fall of the Music Press. I learned so much from it and also enjoyed it so much. So it's in extraordinary characters in there you but know. that was one of the attractions yes. there's a bunch of great stories in there, quite funny yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, yeah sometimes dark as well yeah and there are lots of 
good illustrations in it as well, which are nicely kind of interwoven into oh, it. Which they're all from my collection as well. Yeah, cool. So there it's are really some. Cool. It, it's a bit random, really. So there are some things that are missing. But I thought, you know, let's just yeah. use my stuff, and some of it is quite used as well. But I think that adds to it. Yeah, yeah you get, like definitely get a sense that. of them of, as physical objects. Yeah, yes, that was the nice. idea. Really. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Oh, great! I'm glad you responded um, to that. It remains for us to say goodbye to a couple of notable figures who've, who've passed away in the last couple of weeks, um, starting, of course, with Christine McVie. I was rather shocked. Yeah, um, I was quite when shocking. When I heard that she had died. I don't know, Paul, did you know that she was sick? No, no, not, not at all, no. but it's very, very sad, isn't yeah. it? And I think Stevie Nicks apparently didn't know right. three days before that Christine was in hospital. Though subsequently right. one has learned that actually she had been in fairly poor health for quite quite a while. Yeah. So, But you know, we don't know. And what's nice is we don't know because she didn't put stuff out there. Well, she was quite a private person, very private wasn't she? Person. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of dignified. Yeah. I always thought she was very dignified, given the stories around. She probably emerges yeah. from that dignified, with the most even dignified. Even though she went out with Dennis Wilson, <laughs> but I know. Yeah. Um, um, to retain one's dignity, whilst you know, having yes. a relationship with Dennis Wilson must have been very hard. I mean, what I find really interesting about her is that she was one of the first people drafted into that band after the great guitarists left, yeah. after right. Peter yeah. Green and yeah. Danny Kerwin and Jeremy Spencer. You don't get yeah. the sense she was daunted, right? Well, first of all. She, the, the band was a re- was wreckage at that point. Yeah. They, had, they had an ex-manager who put us a completely fake version yeah, of the Yeah, Fleetwood Mac on the road, you know. yeah. So, so they, were, <laughs> they were kind of literally on their uppers. And she hung in there through the, the Bob Welch iteration and so on and so forth. We were like two or three before Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks sort of turned mm. up. Yes. And also, one, one, what actually... It, it, because I'm not a great reader of writing credits, I didn't realise how many of the oh, really songs. big songs It's amazing, were hers. isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's just astonishing. I mean, some of the biggest hits they had are from Rumours, from Fleetwood Mac and then Rumours. Tango in the Night. I mean, I loved her pop song. Yeah, I think she yeah. was a great pop songwriter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not, not that kind of witchy woman, Californian oh, right. I mean, she just wrote. She just wrote these great... Fucking yeah. pop yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. And, you know, so, yeah. in many ways, she was the heart and soul of that band. There were like kind of more visible faces uh, in front of the stage, mm. and she would be tucked away to one side behind the keyboard. But I think, in some ways, she really was beating heart. That I band. really love that story about her retiring. Essentially, yes, she yes. must have been quite young. I mean, I think sixty is quite young. Yeah, yeah. She must have been around that age, maybe even less. And you know, moving to the country. Yeah. And then after ten years, going, this is driving me mad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Can I yeah. come back in? Yeah. Yes, you know yes. that's kind of great as yeah. well, isn't it? We've yeah. got this wonderful 1977 audio interview with Fleetwood Mac by the late John Pigeon. So I thought I'd uh, just pick out the the bits where Christine's. We're just two short clips of Christine speaking in 1977. They're already like the reinvention of Fleetwood Mac has happened. already happened yeah. because the first Fleetwood Mac album 1975 that album with Buckingham and Nicks has come out and Rumours Rumours is just out but, mm-hmm. but at this point we have no idea how massive it's going to be just the whole the whole visual the visual part of the band Changed radically, I think, with with Stevie and Lindsay joining, because we, we then seemed to become a, a very unified five members, with all still happening to remain our individual selves, which 
which is very interesting. I mean, I've, I've never seen us, obviously, from out front, but I can imagine that it, it must be quite an interesting show to watch. And obviously, musically, it's it's very it's very versatile. The band is very versatile. Now. We haven't even started to explore the musical realms, you know, musical possibilities that, with, amongst the five of us, there's endless permutation. I think it's a really important point to make about that Fleetwood Mac. The fact that there were these two really strong female presences mm. on stage, songwriting, it was such a change from just the sort of macho yeah. four-piece rock band guitar. Yeah. Thing. yeah. But she it's interesting that she picks up or talks about the visual impact. Yeah. Because yeah. of course she'd been to I think it's Birmingham School of Art. That's right. She graduated as a sculptor. Yeah. Yeah. And then she worked in Dickens and Jones as a window dresser. <laughs> I'm always interested yes. in those people who came yes. out of the great art school yeah, yeah. as you as you did. Yeah. The great, <laughs> Thank you. The great art school explosion. <laughs> yeah. And there is some understanding that here was somebody who mm. understood visuals, yeah. who understood yes. how you kind of align yourselves. Right. And maybe she tutored the other or maybe she instinctively did it but certainly the visual impact of Fleetwood Mac on her arrival was just heightened wasn't yeah. it I mean Very good point. I, I love the fact that her her real surname was perfect that her <laughs> yeah. and, and she, she said it was awful she'd go to school and the teacher say well let's see how perfect you really are <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah yeah but also I think she had a great voice actually yeah I, I sort of Amazing. compared to say Stevie Nicks's voice it's a more sort of almost like in the background voice it's not right out there but then you think about you know she sang that version of I'd Rather Go Blind didn't oh, yeah, she yeah. Chicken Chat which is which bluesy soulful Rod's voice version. Rod's version is very much Christine Perkins yes, 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 yes. rather than is it Etta James or yeah. Etta James yeah. yeah so the second clip addresses rumours itself I'd always thought, you know, every time we finish an album, from the word go, since I've been a fleet of Mac, I think, I think uh, this is the one, this is the one, I've got a feeling, you know. I, with Mystery to Me, I felt it very strongly. I thought, this is going to be the one that's going to... And then I f felt myself thinking the same thing again with, with the, the new, the white album, you know. But I knew it was different. I just knew it was. And we all had such a lot of faith when... Mick was talking about, you know, the, the three-week preliminaries that we did to uh, just to try and work ourselves in as a band on the stage because we'd never played before live to an audience. It was... It proved itself to us at that point that, you know, we had a special, a very special thing to offer. So it's goodbye to Christine McVie, mm. very sad. And we also, just in the last few days, lost the legendary Jim Stewart of Stax Records, yeah. co-founder of Stax Records. We were staggered that he was still alive, weren't we? We were slightly surprised. <laughs> One of those people who you just somehow thought, well, yeah, he must have died a few and he years ago. 
in stacks, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. He is the stir, and yeah. Estelle Axton, his yeah. sister, is the yeah. axe. Right. Um, and we do have an audio interview with Estelle on the site where she talks about Jim and how they... Come. I mean, you know, it is one of the great stories of Southern Soul, yeah, isn't yeah. it? That these, 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 these siblings who grew up in a... a tiny little white town yeah. in Tennessee yeah. no black people around at all Estelle says in, in that audio interview and Jim is like a country fiddler oh, yeah. and you know long story short they end up taking over this old cinema yeah. In, yeah. Yeah, in, yeah. On, right. on East Macklemore Avenue in the heart of black Memphis yeah. right. and Estelle runs the record well, shop I, I mean it's a, it's is she remarkable. related to Hoyt? No, she really deserves herself to be given a lot more attention than she gets because everyone talks about it's his label. Mm. It was her running the shop outside the front of it. She started noticing what the black kids, the black kids, because it was basically a black neighborhood, what the black kids were buying. Oh, they were selling records out. Of yeah, yes. it was a record shop, it was a studio, which was the recording about Howlin' Wolf and so forth, you know. But she noticed what the b- local black kids right. were buying, and she basically became the INR person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True to, that. To, yeah. To, to a great extent. You wow. Know. But anyway, so, yeah. so, so, you know, I mean, and then who, who do they sell out to? Wasn't like a Holiday Inn or something? They, they sold out to some sort of. They st- Stax was bought by oh someone like Polygram, wasn't no, it? But it was, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a record label at first. It was a business. Oh, it was. Sorry, I beg your pardon. It was. Was it Paramount or Gulf and Western? Gulf and Western. Like so like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. My but, memory is failing. But you know me what this does? does? This squares a circle in terms yeah. of the music press because Stax sponsored the 1973 Rock Critics Convention. That's right. <laughs> To promote their that, new that was the Al stacks, wasn't it? Yeah. on Ardent. So I think Big Star played, and there's a British band whose name I've always known. Oh, uh, Stray? Heard. Stray? Could Maybe be Stray. Play? I mean, it's, uh, well, just, yeah. I will mention Who played that, that thing. I will mention, well, <laughs> That's I, wild. I actually wrote this four and a half thousand word oral history of the Rock Critics Convention and got quotes out of everyone from Cameron Crowe to Janie Helsky, and we are featuring that in the long read on the homepage this right. week. It is pretty hilarious yeah. I have right. to say yeah. I mean but the there's antics some, they got there's some pretty to, reprehensible behaviour there's some terrible behaviour I hope so this is terrible <laughs> behaviour, but um, okay, um, Mark. Yeah, tell just, us just, about some of the pieces you've yeah, added. Just being, well, I mentioned earlier, Marianne Faithful. This is the very earliest Marianne Faithful piece we've got. Oh, is it? Wow. Library, 1964, Evening Standard. So Maureen Cleaver's writing about her in Evening Standard before the music press was writing about her, and she says her mother, who is Austro-Hungarian and whose command of the English language is not total, was for some time under the impression that her daughter was singing as queers go by. <laughs> um, her great great uncle and her mother side was Baron Leopold Sacher Sacher Massok, from whose name derives the word masochism. Our family skeleton, said Miss Faithful with some pride. She would really have preferred to own Dassard. Mm. I I, I just love it. Anyway... (laughs) Let's that sounds like Andrew Lou Goldham at work. Then, <laughs> in the oh, definitely. The hand of the loom. But that's whoever she yeah. is. Alexis Corner, being interviewed by Roy Carr, Enemy, 1970. Runtime of CCS. Who well, I had the misfortune to see at the album. Oh, right. They had a big hit. But that's a whole lot of love. I'll tell you why, because we they, they couldn't sell out, and so Alexis gave 
his sons, who I was at school with, just loads and loads of tickets. Right. So we, we all went. <laughs> Al Cooper went up and played with them, oddly enough. It's very, very peculiar, really dreadful gig. Um, anyway, he says, I've always been a fan of the Stones. They're the best British blues band ever, playing their own brand of belly button to kneecap music. I should really say that in an even posher and deeper voice. Um, Larry Hurd, house music man, to Jeff Lorez and Blues and Soul 1992. He says, People come to Chicago thinking it's this big house music mecca and house music be playing when they arrive at the airport. I know people have arrived at the airport and asked where they could go hear some house music and people have walked away from them, almost singing a cross in their face. For <laughs> <laughs> um, a really great, I won't read anything from it, it's really fantastic, Richard Goldstein piece this week um, about Ravi Shankar and it, he skewers the sort of the idiocy that surrounds us. Below this one, I like this paragraph. It's, During his concerts, Philharmonic Hall brimmed with the face of sought-after Sator Seated on an Indian carpet and surrounded with wafting incense, Ravi Shankar made love to this weird giraffe of an instrument they call a sitar. He stroked and petted it and made it groan wine. He tickled its belly and rubbed its back. His bare feet knotted at rest kept the rhythm. I, I rather love that. Um, a couple of little short ones. Uh, Deep Purple's Richie Blackmore by Richard Green. Talking about working screaming Lord Such. Of course, he's in such bad. Such taught me a hell of a lot about showmanship. Nothing about musicianship, but how to leap off stage and burn amps and run around in leopard skin. <laughs> vital uh, lessons. Vital, vital yeah. lessons. Uh, Brian Ferry uh, being interviewed by Dave Marsh in Newsday in 1975. When I'm at home, away from all this, I probably leave what might be considered a very decadent life. But that doesn't mean I have a seven-year-old boy's chained to my radiator. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, and lastly, I think, Barney, you quite like this, Pat Benatar, interviewed by Pete McCuskey in Sounds 81, says, at first I used to be nervous, now I could fart on stage and they would just scream. That's my lot. <laughs> Hit me with your best shot. <laughs> <laughs> the great Pat Benatar. Jasper. Jasper. Just two things to mention briefly. First of which is, odd future Wolfgang kill them all. The OF take volume two. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's a reason why they yeah. usually go by just odd future. They're a kind of collective of, you know, Tyler the Creator and Earl Sweatshirt and later Frank Ocean as yeah. well. And it's uh, it's, a, it's a review by Paul Lester on the BBC website of their kind of... They released a ton of mixtapes, and this was a sort of official release, the OF take volume two. And he says... Tyler and left brain skills as producers are peerless, even if their NERD adoration, to match their wacker flock of flame worship, reaches new heights on tracks such as Analog 2 and You Know. Luscious funk Muzak, so prettily breezy you can't believe they're not Pharrell Williams covers. Equal parts sick and slick. Lummy. The form feature disclaimer from Tyler reminding listeners not to underestimate the self-lacerating aspect of his art, just in case you thought this was another misogynist's charter masquerading as a slow jam. Which is interesting, because Tyler, the creator, is, is, I think, an an amazing rapper and musician, Mm -hmm. but has been kind of marred with some controversy for various lyrics, and I think he might even have been banned briefly from entering the UK by one of our previous Home Secretaries. But, so, it's just an interesting How review. How many have we had of those? Oh, Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, was, that was the... I couldn't remember which. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting review, and I think Odd Future, a really interesting group, and had a massive, massive impact from that kind of... This is 2012, from that time forward, on the sound of modern pop, which I think is cool. And then Billie Eilish interviewed by Jude Rogers in The Guardian in December 2021, so just just a year ago, and it's she's just releasing her second album at this point, and it's also when she's been on the cover of British Vogue, basically doing a kind of Marilyn Monroe 
cosplay, essentially. Eilish posted her Marilyn Style UK Vogue cover on Instagram in May. It got a million likes in less than six minutes, her second record-breaking feat on the platform. Proof that money can make you change your values and sell out, railed a Daily Mail headline. It was so much fun, that shoot, Eilish says today. It was playing dress-up, you know, because her voice hardens against the haters. That's what a fucking photo shoot is. <laughs> yeah, good, I just good love Billy. I think good she's fantastic, good and I think that all that criticism of that was just like, oh, come on, you just yeah. just let her but, kind of explore like, yeah, stuff. You know it's kind of manufactured, yeah. isn't it? I mean, as criticism goes, it's yeah, just yeah. Like, like everything. Exactly. Crazy. Well, anyway, Billy's great. We love Billy, so yeah. I wanted to end on on her. That's brilliant. I mean, it just makes me think that as long as there are stars like Frank Ocean and Billy Eilish around, yeah. Pop music masters, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. Definitely. And it's also, you know, riling the right people. Yes. <laughs> if they're upset, yeah. you're doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I, but I, it's I, like shooting fish I, in a barrel. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite easy. I was really glad to see this on my Spotify festival, Printback Fest um, lineup, that um, Lizzo supported Jimi Hendrix. That was a wild. <laughs> well, enjoy, enjoy that gig I, well, when, I, you I, get, when you get yeah. to the pearly yeah. game. The, the, the next night, my band's bottom of the bill to Miles Davis. So it's, it's a, <laughs> Did you get to jam with Miles? <laughs> <laughs> and the Grateful Dead were on there. And the well. Dead. <laughs> I was on stage with Miles and the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, listen, it's time to finish. Do visit Rock's Back Pages, where Fantastic subscribers fun. can read over 50,000 articles and over 800 audio interviews. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP. And if not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. Hurrah. Many thanks to our guest, Mr. Paul Gorman. Oh, it's been great. Been great. Really Thank enjoyed you for joining. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's well, been a thanks. lot of, lot of fun. Great to be yeah. Yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Paul. That concludes episode 142 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Paul Gorman. Totally Wired is published by Thames and Hudson and available now from all good bookshops. Visit Paul's website at paulgormanis.com and follow him on Instagram at underscore paul underscore gorman underscore. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rockspec Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rockspackpages.com. Love when it comes without a warning Cause waiting for it gets so boring can change in 20 seconds A lot can happen in the dark Love when it makes you lose your bearings Some information's not for sharing